Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? Going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. Uh, so in today's podcast, we are going to be doing a Q&A mm-hmm. specifically related to the Berkshire letter. Okay. I did a call for questions saying that we were going to record a podcast going over the Berkshire letter. Um, you know, what are some questions that people have had since reading it themselves? And we'll talk about it on a podcast. And we are going to jump right into that. Um, first question, and this was probably the most common thing I've seen throughout Twitter, okay. is what exactly went wrong with precision cast parts? Um, uh, and, um, you know, he talked about it in the letter, how he took a write down on the company, $11 yeah. billion. Um, so, I mean, do you have, uh, any thoughts on that? You know, he said that he, and, and this person points it out, said that he calculated basically like the normalized future earnings wrong mm-hmm. and he took a, you know, write down on that. I mean, do you have any thoughts on, on that? Yeah. I mean, he sold the airlines. Uh, he can't sell precision cast parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have it for both the, uh, earning stuff from before i sure do okay so you know how i got these i got this from quickfs if you go to quickfs.net and you uh, sign up tell them you came for focus compounding all right go ahead yes thou shall always plug okay so quickfs uh quickfs.net what is it dot net dot net i had to check because i'm like is it dot com or <laughs> no, dot net? Dot yeah net. we're good yeah, yeah. Right. um yeah and say the focus compounding sent you so um it wasn't a low price, so if you can see what, what the price was. I mean, can you give me what the EBIT was or something in the last year? Yes. 2015 would have been the last full year, or 2014? It looks like the EBIT was about $2.6 billion. The year before is 2.6. The year before is 2.1. So call it, I don't know, 2.4, 2.5 okay, and then for those can three years. Do key ratios? So that's a high price, first mm-hmm. of all, because he paid, what, did we say 30? I think I said I have it right down. Thirty-seven billion. Thirty-seven billion. And they so wrote billion. off about thirty percent of that. Right. So it's a teens EBIT multiple, which is high for Buffett at least. Um, and then you have the EBIT margin. Yep. Uh, let's see. Right there. Yeah. Twenty okay. fives. Yeah. Um. So. I mean, I think he overestimated the cyclically adjusted earnings is probably the reason why they wrote it down. Um, I don't know. Other than that, if we can look at the growth rate, you have the growth rate there in like sales and stuff like that. Yeah, year over year growth. Yeah, for when they bought it. Okay. Um, I mean... They have they, they supplied the aerospace business and there's a huge decline in that and there will continue to be a big decline for a while. Um, certainly he believes that and I think that that's shown up in their business already. Um, Do you think traveling via air, uh, airline will roar back once the vaccine, everyone's vaccinated and the world's back to normal? Do you think business travel in the future is going to look different? I think... My feeling about it is probably why Buffett sold the airlines, which is, I think there's a high risk that if even a small part of business, not small part, but if a meaningful part of business travel does not rebound, um, then the economics of airlines will be a lot worse. And I don't know if the competitive situation of what they do will be good. Um, Business travel accounts for a huge amount of the profits of most of the airlines. Um, 
So even if we have, say, 100% of non-business travel uh, returns, but we have a 20% decline in business travel, so you have 80% of what you used to have, I don't think you can really run an airline with that right away. Um, I think that's not, I mean, that would reduce your profitability by quite a bit. I mean, that like um, by a lot, because I, I think that most, I mean, in terms of your profitability from before, it might seem, the risk that people thinking about it might say, okay, well, really, your profits are only going to decline by, let's say, like, um, 10 to 15 percent right if you you thought about how much of your profits were coming from business travel let's say business travel was 80 percent plus of your profits it's going to drop by 20 percent of that segment so really you're talking about 10 percent or less decline but it's a high fixed cost sort of business with not enough barriers to entry and stuff to stop people from over competing i shouldn't say barriers to entry for new airlines but i mean barriers to just underpricing things um and it's very possible that you'll have too much capacity for a while and so I, when I was saying sort of like uh, about the airlines before, when we were talking about it during COVID, why would you be building a lot of new airplanes? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that you would. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't. It would be a business that would. I, I mean, I would have sold the airlines just like you did. Um, so, is that necessarily ruinous for precision cast parts? If the airlines aren't a very good business, but there's a lot of demand eventually for it, maybe. I think his entire vision of what the aerospace business, of what airlines were going to be in the U.S. and stuff, has completely changed um, Buffett's. I think he was wrong about that because of what happened with the pandemic. Why do you think airlines have been attractive to him in general? Well, they look pretty attractive to me, too. Um, I mean... I've looked at railroads. I've looked at cruise lines. He said about railroads that it took them 120 years, but they finally got rationalized. There was constant overbuilding mm-hmm. and everything. In the U.S., air travel growth was slowing down enough, um, and it had consolidated among a few very large carriers. Which is and, typically when he gets yeah. interested. Yeah, and in fact, some of the ca- in fact, it was even less competitive than it appeared because Southwest doesn't really do international, and it carries a huge number of miles, but not necessarily the huge number of revenue compared to other ones who have international business. So there was some limit on the... Um, comp- it was more rational that way, right? And um, they were sort of targeting... I mean, Southwest was always solid, but the others were sort of targeting borderline investment grade type. We we hope to be real companies that aren't going to go out of business and stuff and mm-hmm. that we shouldn't um, be junk rated and stuff like that. They were buying back their stock, um, but they weren't putting a lot of new capital into the business. So when I talk about industries, I say, well, you know, the line business looks like it'll be okay and stuff. What I mean is 10 years ago or, or more than that now, demand for Lime dropped. By a huge amount like probably how it never dropped in, since 80 years before that so it had like the worst drop um other things the same thing cement and stuff like that um and yet it, it didn't devastate the companies because they didn't cut their prices and increase their production because they said that's stupid to do that um if you get to that position with other sorts of companies that kind of level of rationalization of the industry then you can be successful but if an industry is growing too fast and new people are coming in then you have a real problem and I think it had gotten to be looking a lot like, um, like I said, like railroads and like cruise lines, which have been a bad business for reasons of 
building too many of them and oil being too expensive. Um, but if you put that kind of thing aside, it was more in line with those leaders in those areas where it had really gotten down to just a few companies and a much better business. Uh, I would have made the same mistake probably with airlines. I don't know that I ever liked them as much as Buffett did, but that it was looking like these could really be good stocks, produce a lot of free cash flow, buy back a lot of their own shares. I certainly would have looked at airlines and thought they were going to do okay. Um, but now I don't know. Got it. See, people pay attention because someone wants to know, were there any parts of this year's letter that made Jeff write, hmm, did you draw any conclusions from the lack of discussion of various topics? Yes. I mean, I drew the conclusion of a few things. Buffett doesn't directly criticize individual people. He generally shies away from controversial topics. Um, I think he tries to tell stories to have you draw your own conclusions about things from them rather than saying something about that. Uh, like Charlie Munger sort of um, sermonizes, you know, he'll give his opinion and try to kind of um, uh, hope to convert you that way. I don't think he believes that he can convert you, but he, he you know, uh, I don't think that Buffett does that kind of thing. He follows more of like a Socratic method type thing. Uh, he, you get the idea of what he's focused on and what he's thinking about it, uh, but he doesn't really talk directly about it. You know, that's what I felt with the annual meeting thing where he's talked about in the short run, things can be as bad as the Great Depression, mm -hmm. but in the long run, it's all okay. Yeah. I think that's a pretty clear message, mm -hmm. you know, and people are saying like, well, is he bullish or bearish? Well, he's saying both. You, we don't know what the outcome is. It can be very bad in the short run, but in the long run, things yeah, What did he okay. say for, you know, a couple of years, people didn't realize they were in the uh, a Great Depression? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and he showed he, the market crash, and then he said, look, it went up here, and then, you know, went even further down, and all that sort of thing. Um, but he also said, but look, like, even with that, that period is still a period that we, people would be happy to live through, you know, the, the long-term compound return that they got for it. Yeah, never bet against America, and he reiterated that in this year's letter as well. Yeah, at the same time that he wasn't really buying a lot of other stocks or something, you know? He doesn't give you a completely clear message that way, I guess, that people would want. Never bet against America. Well, that's what they say, right? Don't follow what he says. Follow what he does. Yeah, Buffett's rarely going to say, like, oh, everything's... Um, I mean, at times he said some things. Look, he's very clear. Bonds are too expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, if you ask him where do you think interest rates will go, he won't say higher. But if he didn't think higher, then he wouldn't give you a paragraph saying, bond, don't go into bonds ever. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really a mistake. Um, I, that wasn't a comment on interest rates. It wasn't a comment on inflation. But I bet if you asked him, he'd say, well, there can always be higher interest rates. There can always be higher inflation. Uh, you know, it is something I think about. Mm -hmm. You know, um, did I say, hmm? Did I write, hmm? Yeah. In some parts. Um, Which, for those that don't know, Jeff usually writes that when something's questionable to him. Oh, yeah. There were some things. One, he said that the majority of the write-off was precision cast parts. He didn't say that all of it was. So they wrote off some other stuff. Um, and what was the other one that I put it down for? So that was one. Um, oh, and then, you know, I, I did 
put that down because he sort of sold down, not exactly, but he sort of sold down Apple. We don't know if they would keep selling or whatever. We'll see in future things. But he sold down Apple only in about proportion to their uh, Apple's buybacks. It wasn't really much more aggressive than that. Mm -hmm. It was slightly more aggressive, maybe like 10%. You know, his rate was maybe 1.1 times what it should have been. But that's almost like taking a dividend from Apple instead of a buyback, Mm -hmm. using theirs as as a dividend instead of a buyback, which actually is something he did buy agreement with some companies many many years ago where he would agree to sell into their buyback to keep his same proportion at stake i have no idea if it means anything and if he might just sell a lot of apple eventually but he did i did notice that he sort of if you think about it he's sort of taking a dividend from apple without really eliminating his like percentage ownership in any way he's Mm -hmm. kind of converting a buyback into a dividend Mm. um uh, somebody asked why did warren buffett omit any updates on his latest investments and how his operating companies were doing and spent the letter recounting past glories that have been heard many times before. Yeah. You mentioned that, that you thought that it was like recounting past. I said that I said, I felt like it was the life, you know, flash before my eyes type of situation at the end of a movie. I think there were to me, I think there were maybe three reasons for doing that. One, I think it's a great advertisement for buying a company and he wants to buy more companies. That's by far the best way to do it. Um, we can think of all different ways of doing it, whatever, but for the kinds of businesses he wants, it's either word of mouth of someone else telling them about that or that section. That's the section that would appeal to, to people who might want to sell their company is reading that section. Yeah. If he's going to get someone to call him who wouldn't normally, it'll be because they saw that section or someone told them about that section. Um, Cause someone will say like, Oh, you sound kind of like the person who did that. And you know, mm-hmm. um, I think the other reason Uh, the number two reason I would say is I did feel that it had a, um, I don't know if I want to call it political because I don't think that's the right word for it, but I think it had a focus on um, a sort of a model of what good things to be doing and uh, for capitalism. And I think a, a in a sense it's very indirect but in a sense i think he did kind of gently promote an idea of those people creating those businesses over time and i do really think he kind of stressed these aren't these aren't the things that people are buying today the stocks people are buying today and talking about stuff this is what business really is and stuff this is what we bought this is what's successful and it's not about New York and California, and those aren't the only things out there. And it's not all about story stocks and things where you talk about the conglomerate things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the third thing, which is um, that he, I know people want him to talk about SPACs and things, but I think he wants to talk about that and not talk about those sorts of things. And so I, you know, that was my feeling about it. Yeah. Somebody yeah. asked directly, was Buffett inspired to write about conglomerates slash stock promoters by the surgeon SPAC promoters? I yes. Mean, yes, absolutely. Yeah, there was stuff called letter stock. I don't know if people know about all this stuff, but um, it, a lot there were some things that were similar. Um, 
a lot of times people are buying into conglomerates. It's hard to explain to people what I mean by conglomerates from the 60s because it's nothing like the conglomerates you think of today. You think of like, oh, AT&T is a conglomerate or something like that, you know, um, something that might spin some things off and whatever. But we mean like um, built around a particular person who has sort of a cult of personality and would use their overpriced stock to buy other things. And there'd be a lot of speculation about what are they going to buy next? And then they would buy that. People would get into it to be with that person on rumors of whatever mm-hmm. was going to happen. They would do presentations to Wall Street and kind of do that sort of stuff. They would maybe fake some of their earning stuff, manipulate it so that it would look good and manipulate it of the thing they were buying. So that might look good um, and sort of do arbitrage of the earnings multiples, which he talked about there. Mm-hmm. And it kind of made the thing of creating something using fictions of how people might value it and analysts and stuff. You take something which is the same asset as something else and make it look like it's worth more. The best example I can give of this is the kind of thing it's similar to today is WeWork. WeWork, um, I was talking about, I was reading a book about WeWork and one thing that stands out, which is very of that conglomerate era is the founders walking through and saying, oh, how many desks can we put in here? How much revenue would that be? But what he's thinking is, our valuation is this much per revenue. So we can afford to pay this much for um, the building. Regis can't pay that much for the building because they're valued at a lower multiple of revenue. Mm-hmm. We'll both get the same revenue for the building, but mm-hmm. my the building is worth more to WeWork than to them because venture capitalists will pay WeWork on a higher multiple than something that's essentially our same business. Mm-hmm. And the same thing here, the conglomerate stuff, what they would do is they buy businesses that weren't growing very fast and stuff, but through their acquisitions looked like a growth stock. Mm-hmm. So it's like a fake growth stock sort of thing by buying up all that. The good example, the one that Buffett would highlight as being the example of what to do is Teledyne or Berkshire Hathaway itself. But the bad examples, I mean, I could go through all, a lot of them and won't say their names and stuff, but there are a bunch of people who became famous for a brief time and then kind of flamed out and um, are mostly forgotten to history. But they were the kinds of people you see sponsoring the SPACs and stuff today, you know, and maybe in 15 years or whatever, we won't remember many of their names, but we might remember a few, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that era had a big, big impression on Buffett and his investing, the conglomerate craze. Yeah. Um, where does Precision Cast Parts acquisition rank in the history of Berkshire mistakes? Um, I mean, mistakes of commission, one of the worst. It was a very big one versus the size of the company. It's hard to think of something that's really bad like that. Um, yeah. Buffett hasn't had a tremendous record in cyclical stuff. Um, I mean, you, like you were saying, liter- ex- actual air stuff, airline stuff, he mm-hmm. has not had a good one in. But um, he, I'd say he has, has a mostly poor record in anything tied, or, or at least a record that he would have been better off buying just more of the stocks he already owned or something mm-hmm. um, in, uh, you know, anything tied to oil, aluminum, uh, gold, metals, whatever, those sorts of things. Not that great. Um the problem with this one is such a big acquisition. So Buffett, Buffett's great skill has been position sizing stuff. He bought some stuff that went to nothing. He bought, um, what did he buy? TXU bonds, I think, that went to, like, you know, basically got impaired. And um, Irish banks, which went to nothing, basically. Yeah. So he has had total losses on things, but um, they're not large. And then he did an acquisition like uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe, which is a great acquisition for the amount of money he was spending, that sort of thing, his big deals have been very successful. The size of his deals have been successful. Look at Apple, right? Had he made some not so great stock moves in the last 10 years? Yes. But then when he makes the biggest move ever, 
it's successful. You know, like his biggest stock purchase of the decade or something isn't something that's very successful. All what it doesn't matter. He makes ten other mistakes that are with yeah, you know so tiny good. amounts of that. So that was always what I've been super impressed with uh, with Buffett, especially since running the fund with you. Right? Is that it's just he constantly was making bigger and bigger acquisitions along the way. He has it's to very because hard he to keeps do. sizing them yeah. like as big as he can. I mean, and it's like what if you what if that biggest one is a mistake? You could yeah. completely. But you historically, know, what you've known with Buffett is more like when he's like, I need to not make it too big. Those are the ones that don't do that well. He's been very good at I'm making the all in bet. I mean, like what he, he didn't even get all the Geico shares he wanted when he did the Geico bailout. Mm-hmm. He was backstopping it, so he was willing to take way more. Now it got oversubscribed, so he didn't end up getting it. And it's a combination of preferred convertible and and common that he got. But if you really look back as to how much he was willing to bet on that, and that was a very good investment, um, it was huge. Uh, Washington Post, he basically bought as much as he could. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at what Coke really was compared to the equity of Berkshire, it was a very big purchase. So when he's made those decisions um, that have really worked out well, they've been really big bets. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he's been good at not making dumb big bets. He has sometimes done some not very smart things, usually when he has way too much cash. It's a smaller deal, it's maybe more of a value type thing. Um, but that wasn't the case here with the airlines and precision cast parts. They weren't like low multiples or anything like that. Can asset heavy businesses be very good businesses? They can be good. I don't think they can be very good. And I think Buffett explained that. Like, I mean, that's the, that's is the problem that I think, um, has been at Berkshire center for a long time. And I really do date it back to like about the time of the gen deal and stuff. Berkshire has changed in the last 25 years or so in a way that I think is fine for Berkshire and I don't think is a bad decision about what way to take the company in the environment that he had, but is not how he really built his wealth. And so when he tells stories about seized candies and um, things like that, I think those are the kinds of businesses that it would be better for Berkshire to buy. Mm-hmm. And they might be the kinds of businesses is better for people listening to this podcast to go look for. I don't think he's saying if I had a uh, million dollars to invest today, I would buy an insurer. I'm sure he would buy an insurer. But other than that, I would buy, you know, Apple, a giant utility, yeah, and a giant railroad. railroad. Yeah. Yeah. And he's said that. There are ways of making good returns, but not great. Um, and it's a good way to invest $100 billion or, you know. Sure. Uh, lots of questions about, you know, uh, a lot of stuff that was not in the letter. Okay. Um, why do you think he didn't disclose the pandemic and the various effects it had on the economy? Um, we've talked a lot about that, both in the Berkshire letter that we, the episode we did. I mean, I think it's kind of temporary stuff. I write some stuff to, to clients, partners, uh, things like that. And, um, I honestly don't want to talk about the stuff generally. What I mostly say is it was, it's a non-representative quarter and, you know, um, I mean, I don't know. You have the year before the pandemic, you have the year, I mean, you have the data, so you can look at things after that. I mean, I guess he could have gone into a lot of detail about it, um, but I don't. I, he doesn't like to focus on like temporary things at all. Mm-hmm. I think he. I think he's very aware that when you talk to people, they always want to zero in on this temporary thing and not focus in the long term. And he always yeah. wants to get them to say, "Stop looking at that." And always look at everything he writes. It's not just taking a victory lap about past investments and stuff. He always is like look at the history over 20 some years, even when he's making investments like Coke or whatever, he's talking about their history from a very long time ago when he needs to make a reference for 
um, you know, SPACs or whatever today, he's talking about conglomerate things. Yeah. He really does not like to say, ever say like, oh, look at the last five years. Even when he makes an argument for like the stock market was too expensive, he draws this graph for, to the 1990s one that's like over a huge period of time and those sorts of things. If they ask him about GameStop and shorting things and stuff, I bet you he mentions Northern Pacific. Uh, the the short you know which is over 100 or like 100 years old mm. um so i just think he really wants people to get off of the stuff of today and focus in on the long run and all that kind of thing yeah i like it we could close today with a question that says if you and jeff were charlie and warren what would you guys do in 2021 to increase shareholder value at berkshire well i think berkshire will do it i think they're gonna buy back stock become a cannibal I think they'll buy back stock. Yeah, yeah I like I that. I think that that's what they'll do. I like that. Cool. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the Bolt of Bus here today. If you like um, uh, timeless content, speaking of timeless content, I am uploading everything that Jeff has ever written on the internet. I am okay. undergoing this huge task uh-huh. of creating a vault of all of Jeff's archives. And it's going to be on focuscompound.com. I already started uploading it. I'm also uploading old podcasts onto YouTube, calling it uh, The Lost Archives. So oh, go old to- Old podcasts that I did, not us together. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So 2004, 2005, somebody very nicely sent me some old ones from 2010. So if anyone right. has more podcasts that you have on a hard drive, like this gentleman <laughs> did, email them to me um, or you, you can, can see DM how much me. I valued them that I kept the hard copies. Yeah, of course. Them, right? Right. You right. get That's them typical. from someone else. You know what? actually the funniest thing about it is so i saw like uh, when i'm as i'm re-uploading these i could see when you uploaded them okay. the time and it's all like 2 30 3 a.m 4 a.m i'm like jeff has literally always been a night owl yeah i thought yeah. that was funny i so. think that i i some of those i remember i recorded very late um and then you know there's editing and stuff but no some of them were literally recorded very late for some reasons yeah. i remember it was much harder to record things back then i remember having to turn oh, off uh heating and cooling because oh. of the problems that, yeah, you can't start up. I mean, you couldn't start up because uh, like background conditioning noise, yeah. or, or um, heating in the where I was recording and I had things set up to be able to do that. Yeah, it's a lot easier now. than it, But actually, it was a lot easier within just a few years. That I told was really somebody, early in podcasting. I told somebody that uh, I'm uploading these and they're like, well, I didn't even know what podcasts were in 2005. It was hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I might have had like Idiot's Guide to Podcasts or whatever. You know, it, it was, yeah. But like I said, a couple years later, it was a lot like it is now. I mean, it really changed over fast. Yeah. So funny. So anyways, if you want to get access to that, go to our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, um, and then go to Focus Compounding. This part is free of the website, so there's going to be a ton of content there. Uh, so www.focuscompounding.com. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with both of us here today, and we will see you in the next podcast.